So there's a lot of discipline around process. And, and what we find as we talk to clients, people don't understand the value that's associated with that. You know, if you maintain your car and keep good records, it helps enhance the value of that asset. We need to get a mind shift movement. But today, most people still buy linear. Hello, and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches are better for people, planet and profit. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our fortnightly edition of Circular Insights. Welcome to episode 34. I'm recording this on the 14th of August 2020, after a busy period getting ahead on projects, before I start proofreading the second edition of my Circular Economy Handbook. I've added lots of new content, including a chapter on packaging, and I've updated many of the research sources, so there'll be lots to read through. It'll be available on the 3rd of November through the publisher Kogan Page and from all good booksellers. Also, Peter and I are finalising an exciting new coaching offer to help small businesses and startups get the most out of circular economy approaches. I'll let you know more in the next episode. In this episode, we meet Noreen Cam and Michael Brown of Loop Global out in Australia. I've known and admired Noreen for a few years. Noreen has a deeply rooted sense of purpose and is using her extensive supply chain skills and networks to help companies get more value from their assets and equipment. We find out how Loop Global's circular asset management solutions help organisations to reduce capital expenditure manage their assets to improve performance and reduce costs, and to recover value from the equipment once they've finished using it. Noreen founded Loop Global in 2017 after recognising the opportunity to help organisations make better use of their assets instead of letting them end up unused, or worse, in landfill. Before setting up Loop, Noreen was Executive Director at AUZ Country Carriers, and on the board of Community Support Frankston, CSF, in Australia. CSF help thousands of homeless and disadvantaged people every year, and AUZ supported this by collecting non-perishable donations from clients, and then using its spare logistics capacity to store and deliver the goods to the charity for free. Noreen has a master's degree in supply chain, plus over 20 years' experience in supply chain management. She's worked in a variety of industry sectors, from life sciences and biotechnology to FMCG, education and consulting. Michael Brown joined Loop Global as chairman in July 2019 and has a wealth of international operations experience. He spent 15 years working for Eastman Kodak across Asia, USA and England in a variety of leadership roles in supply chain and finance. Returning to Australia in 2002, he's worked as a consultant and held senior roles for Whirlpool, Qantas 
and other companies in the FMCG, aviation and health sectors. Michael also has a Master's in Supply Chain from the University of Melbourne. Have a listen. I have known Noreen for a few years now. Um, we got in touch through our mutual backgrounds in logistics and supply chains after I did a talk um, for the Institute of Logistics down in the south of England. And I've been really impressed by all the brilliant work Noreen's been doing with Loop Global. And I'm delighted to talk to her and her colleague Michael Brown today to find out what's happening with Loop Global's network and also the Circular Asset Management Services. So Noreen and Michael, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's an absolute pleasure to be here today with you. So first of all, let's tell um, the story of, um, you know, a bit of background to Loop Global and how you got going and the kind of things that you're doing for your customers now. Okay. Sure, I'll let Michael start with that. Okay, so thanks, Catherine, for the opportunity. So Loop has been around for over two years now. Um, we're entering our third year of business. Uh, Noreen's the founder of the business. She's um, the passionate circular economy leader in our business, and um, and many of us uh, are inspired by her uh, her zeal and her, uh, her her fervor for this uh, for this uh, enterprise. Noreen and I have a relationship. We've been known each other for around ten years. We completed um, our masters of supply chain here in Melbourne at the University of Melbourne. So, Noreen invited me uh, just over a year ago to join Loop and provide support. So I act as the role of chair. Um, part of my background is in the circular asset, circular asset management field, uh, largely from a role that I had at Qantas some years ago. And um, a lot of our processes, if you will, <clears throat> relate to the practices that have occurred in heavy industry, aviation, mining, utilities, where uh, there's a commercial imperative to drive circular asset management um, and some of what we're now trying to develop and, and, and the actions that we breathe and, and live uh, are founded on some of the learnings that have come from that experience. Good stuff. And Noreen, you wanted to um, talk a bit about the Loop network that you've been growing over the last few years as well. Yes, definitely. So we're really excited because um, our passion is really to prolong the life cycle of assets to minimise landfill. Um, and we, what we've created is we've established a network that's all about the full life cycle of the assets, considering from the start, all the stakeholders from the original equipment manufacturer to the buyers of the assets to building a network of service partners to support those assets in their second life or subsequent lives um, and a new mindset shift of sellers of the assets as opposed to that traditional linear mindset of procuring, using and then disposing, which is the vast majority of what we've seen so far. Yeah, and um, when, we've, when we've talked before about Michael's background, then that kind of model is much more common in aviation. I know Rolls-Royce is one of the, the best known examples of um, selling performance and services rather than selling the equipment with their power by the hour model for airline engines. And I think you'd seen, um, seen that and talked to Michael and realised that there's a potential to apply those same principles across all kinds of different sectors and 
and for a whole range of different assets and how you're seeing really underused underused or underutilized assets um, everywhere um, and realizing how much value is just you know being either left on the table or it's or even worse it's going to landfill and being completely lost exactly so my background also was in a laboratory a food testing laboratory so we've ended up starting with laboratory equipment generic laboratory equipment as our first type of assets but more and more we're um, diversifying and growing into other industries um, such as manufacturing uh, but generally the assets that we focus on are more the portable plug and play higher value um, assets just due to capacity as a startup I guess um, but what we've noticed is that uh, some people in organisations, they might have a, a depreciation budget or requirement to upgrade their equipment every few years. So within, let's say, five-year cycle. And then, but these assets, though, have at least 12, 15-plus years cycle left in, life cycle left in them. So we're seeing assets that end up in landfill uh, just due to it's not their core business to try to find a, a secondary home for them or anything. Um, and they're ending up yeah in, in landfill well before their expiry date yeah and i guess there's also the issue of um even though it's not somebody's kind of uh, the core core purpose of their role to find another um outlet or a, another use for the asset at the end of time um there's also the issue of um things ending up in a in a kind of fire sale um we've talked about um x-ray machines and scanners and things like that in the past haven't we where it's a really valuable piece of equipment and it's still working um but you know a, a better model's come along and all of a sudden there's no there's no room to store that quite big piece of equipment anywhere um and so it's it's kind of sold off uh, you know quick as quick as possible um just to just to clear it out of the system yeah, exactly. So um, one thing that is quite unique about our model is we really try to partner with um, all of our clients and the stakeholders really long term. So it's not about being reactive when they do need to dispose of the asset. It's actually trying to understand what their asset base um, from the start and if they're working towards certain depreciation cycles, they can actually register it within our circular asset database up front. So it's almost like if you um, were buying a car and you knew you weren't going to use it to the end of its life, then you're going to maximise and make sure that it's got the full service history and everything to get the maximum value out of it when you've, you, you, you're upgrading to your next um, vehicle. So we do that and we partner with organisations and with Michael's uh, amazing background um, as well. We've been able to really refine uh, our service offering in terms of how do we help educate um, our clients so that they're maintaining and keeping those service records and everything so that we're optimising the value for it at the end of their life with it mm, great so in terms of the how it works maybe you could talk us through the kind of steps that you go through with a with a client um for you know a typical asset management service sure um so it depends on where they sit within uh the loop network model but let's use the example for a buyer um as an example um so a buyer of an asset will generally work with us. We've got a case study where we worked with a, a company that was setting up a new laboratory and we worked with them and got their capital plan 
one year out from when they were going to build this new laboratory, they identified that they needed 16 assets um, to set up this lab. And our asset base is continuously growing. But at that time, uh, over that one year period, we're able to source nine out of those 16 assets proactively within our circular asset database and network. And over that um, period of time, we were able to save them a 54% saving against the new market equivalent for that same equipment. Uh, equipment. But what is really uh, impactful as well is that a lot of the equipment that we come across, uh, over 60% was actually under three years old. So we're not actually talking about equipment that's really at the end of its life or anything. Most of it have recently come out of the OEM warranty. Um, they're still in excellent condition, but just due to different factors, it could be a, a, a lab got shut down like shortly after it was set up and a new, new owners brought it over and then they didn't have use for that equipment. It could be incorrect CapEx uh, purchases. It, yeah, it could be um, people have certain grant or government funding or uh, CapEx budgets that if they don't use that year, they lose the following year. So it could be multiple reasons, yeah, so that we, we're picking up these sorts of assets. Yeah. So um, just so that I'm, I'm clear, not only are you helping people find disposal routes um, for their end-of-use assets, but you're also helping companies find pre-used equipment and assets instead of them having to buy new, and that's where that 54% saving comes from. Exactly. So we don't like really using the term use so much. We, we, we try to refer to underutilized because it hasn't been utilized to the fullness of its life cycle. Um, so that's from the sort of buyer's perspective. But then from the seller's perspective, we are working with organizations. So they might have been, they would have been an initial buyer and um, registered with us because they knew they were going to depreciate their asset. Uh, so prior to the depreciation, they might be working six months out or a year out even, the longer the visibility, the better. Then once we know, we will actively source those circular asset buyers as well in the background whilst that asset is depreciating um, off their books so that we've got, we can reallocate that as soon as they're finished using it. So it's actually saving any potential storage costs, any disposal costs, um, and we've also modelled out what the standard life cycle of some assets are from the other side, from the seller's perspective, and we've been able to show a total cost of ownership saving of 40% against the standard life cycle under a linear model versus our circular asset model. Great. And I guess, um, Michael, maybe you can um, compare and contrast this with your aviation experience that starting to think about the total cost over a lifetime gets people thinking differently when they can see that um, you can either save some money at the front end by buying something that's um, that's been um, that's, that's you know already been in use or you can save money at the um, at the end of the use cycle by finding a, um, a partner to pay money for that how, how does it how does it compare yeah so in aviation um as a commercial imperative, um, managing the asset to the fullest of its use is, is uh, one of those cornerstones of trying to run an airline efficiently. <clears throat> so an asset um, may have multiple owners for its life cycle and, and will go from different levels of operators as, as fleets retire or as new airlines come on stream. Those assets continue to get used 
uh, multiple times through the through the life. The, the secret behind it is aviation and, and heavy industry sectors are very good at managing the asset and recording its use, and equally in practices around warranty management, uh, maintaining. Then you do there's a um, a regulatory imperative that sits in aviation where you do need to maintain uh, maintenance records that, mm. that, that suit the regulator. So there's a lot of discipline around process. And, and what we find as we talk to clients, people don't understand the value that's associated with that. And you know, Noreen introduced the value of your car. Like, you know, if you maintain your car and keep good records, it helps enhance the value of that asset at the end of its life. Uh, or when you want to turn that asset over. The <clears throat> same principles apply to any of the assets that could be considered under circular economy, whether it be office equipment, laboratory equipment, manufacturing equipment, um, you know, anything that's used in a production transportation sense. Everything in that needs a, an appropriate register capability to record the use, manage the use. Uh, and there's a lot of leakage here um, just in how warranties managed. Um, but as, as we try to consider using that asset to the fullest of its life, the discipline around that record keeping is really critical. And, and that's an element that we're finding disappointing. Um, businesses don't see these pieces of equipment as assets, <clears throat> um, even though they've been CapEx approved and CapEx purchased. Um, if you look in some of the hospital sectors and some of the other medical sectors, um, it's tr treated like a consumable. Oh, it's no longer usable. I'll, I'll get it repaired rather than preventive maintenance regimes and other activities that again come from the aviation sector that should be used across other sectors. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I guess it kind of reminds me of um, a, a completely different sector. But um, when I was at DHL, we were working with some retailers and um, we're trying to work out why they had so much excess stock. Um, and these were kind of you know fast moving consumer goods and so on. And what we found was that the the buyers were bonused based on the theoretical margin of what they bought. So mm. say they bought a hundred uh, or a thousand a thousand kettles, and the margin was five pounds a kettle. All of that was was counted for their bonus as soon as they'd made the purchase. So yep. if they only sold one of those kettles because you know it was actually more expensive than than the competitor's kettle, that never mm. got tracked. Um, so yeah. they always looked like they'd, they'd done really well and yet they'd bought something that, you know, just sat in a warehouse for years and then and several years later might have been written off. And, and there was no yeah. kind of closing the closing the loop. One of the elements that um, relates back to the master's program that Nora and I did is one of the uh, topics led by with an eminent professor was around the incentivization in the supply chain. And incentives drive behavior uh, and that's very clear here and so in one of the elements we look at and, and certainly one of the things we try and educate people on is the mind shift that's required we need to get a mind shift movement but today most people still buy linear and so the procurement community looks at that <clears throat> and look at it in terms of a risk averse position and uh, the safety that comes from buying new so there's some other elements that we need to look at in terms of the procurement community and, and to encourage circular procurement does require a, a mindset shift um, and, and new behaviors in terms of how you evaluate. Um, equally in that is the incentive that sit behind that in the procurement community and the, the risk balance that's required 
is another important feature of trying to make that shift. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot to do, isn't there, in terms of encouraging people to think differently about, you know, it's kind of habitual behaviour that, that people have adopted for years and Correct. starting to think differently and adopting this this mindset of you know what's what's the total cost of ownership or total cost of use whilst i've mm -hmm. got it and what can i do at the start of the process to reduce the cost what can mm -hmm. i do throughout the process to reduce the um the cost by as you say making sure you're on top of maintenance instead of um emergency repairs which could be more expensive and and incur downtime and then Correct. what can i do at the end of the process um, to maximise the, the, you know, the the end of life um, mm. return, um, you know, and even if you budgeted for um, a resale value at the end, the more that you do to maintain it, and the more that you do to plan ahead for um, the disposal route, the more chance there is that you'll actually exceed that and lower the t the cost of ownership still further. Yeah, correct. It's a full an assessment of the life cycle and managing your asset with some discipline. Um, it's an element, as we've said in our experience, there's a lot of waste that sits there uh, in a number of sectors just because there's no practice, there's no discipline in terms of applying the principles that we've, we've just talked about. Mm. And are you providing the asset management registers and supporting people with the behaviour change that they need to do on a day-to-day -day basis? Yes, uh, one of our offering is to provide some consulting support and help businesses to establish those regimes. So, you know, that's one of the elements that we work. So not only are we in the business of trying to move those assets and help those assets find new homes, but to educate, um, that's a key platform of what the Loop Global model does. Mm. And what kind of reactions and feedback are you getting now that you're starting to talk to more and more customers about this? Yeah, it's... It's an interesting element. I'll maybe let Noreen make a comment as well, but it's 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 trying to move the minds is really the the barrier that's there. Um, it's, it's, it's sorry, it's it's ahead. quite mixed in terms of um, the reaction. I, I'd like to give the example with the OEMs, for example, because it's the start of the supply chains as well. But um, in terms of the the creation of the assets and manufacturing the assets, so. Uh, different OEMs have got different uh, requirements or legislation in terms of what they do. Um, sometimes their priority is often to sell in the new assets. So sometimes it can be also planned for obsolescence on um, making the consumables obsolete over a number of years or not providing that service support. But um, other OEMs, um, they, they, a lot of OEMs are also seeing the shift that we need to towards a circular model as well and looking at different um, avenues for that. So, so it's been quite mixed in terms of that uh, across various industries that we're speaking to. Um, what we're finding is um, the more sort of government-led or bureaucratic uh, organisations, it can be a bit of a longer lead time and it's more the internal miscommunication or um, lack of uh, discussion within the different departments and lack of visibility. So there's so many different um, stakeholders involved that manage their own uh, silo sort of departments, which I guess is a standard supply chain occurrence. Um, the smaller sort of organisations that are more agile uh, and SMEs, that they're definitely more on board and it's a lot quicker because they realise that we can't keep going the way that we've always been working. Mm. And I guess... 
even if people think they can carry on because it's worked worked so far, when you start to demonstrate the size of the savings that are available that you've you've um, experienced in some of the case studies, then I bet people's eyes are really opening, you know, lighting up. Exactly. And it's not just um, the immediate, the cost savings, I guess, uh, but uh, the monetary cost savings, but it's, it's everything in terms of, the, and you know, Catherine, <laughs> of everyone in terms of, you know, the waste produced, uh, just to the amount of energy that goes into manufacturing that. So just so much of the um, hidden costs as well that people aren't uh, capturing. Um, and I think there's more and more a corporate social responsibility program within organisations that um, and sustainability offices that are coming on board and that are the champions that are helping us lead uh, that movement into those organisations as well. Yeah, and I'm thinking back to my podcast with Circular Computing and some of the statistics that they were able to show their clients about the reduced um, energy and carbon required by buying remanufactured instead of new um you know the reduced everything water footprint the amount of of obviously the amount of metal and plastic and so on that was required um and providing that information to clients was really useful in in helping people not just make the business case but you know that it can go in environmental social social governments governance reports um and um you know companies were using it for marketing and all sorts so there were, you know as well as the monetary benefits there were lots of other ways to um make make people realize that this really is the right way to go um and that um you know the the old model of of uh, ownership is is being replaced um and for some for some sort of day-to-day -day products in certain countries were we're already doing that i mean in in the uk um more people get cars on on contracts these days, I think, than you know, new cars or newish cars on contracts rather than um, you know going for a bank loan and and shelling out twenty thousand pounds or whatever. Um, mobile phones in the UK are often on contracts, so we take that for granted. Um, and it's just that, as you as you say, it's a it's just a mindset shift, starting to think differently about you know how do we keep this this piece of equipment in the system. Um, and make sure it's we're, we're getting the best use out of it. I remember that um, information, the infograph that you gave about the uh, the computer, which uh, there was twelve hundred kilograms of mining minerals uh, for to generate one laptop, and you know that's still an image that sticks out in Michael's and my mind constantly, and that we we continuously educate people within the industry about because if you think about a laptop that's under three kilos and 1200 kilos that goes into that imagine the amount of minerals and is that's extracted to produce the assets that we're moving yeah exactly and once you start to look into the supply chains of metals and minerals the story gets even worse it's not just about the amount of waste um, but you know the the destruction of um, environments and um, displacement of local communities and um, you know conflict minerals and all that kind of stuff is all is all tied up with a lot of the stuff that goes into technology as as you will um, know know better than me probably so in terms of companies that 
that provide these assets and equipment starting to switch on to selling services instead of selling products? Are you noticing more interest and, and more offerings in that direction now? So um, one thing that uh, I guess in, in the current climate with COVID, I would say, a lot of um, organisations are also realising that they don't need that the physical space or they're looking at their manufacturing processes or being more lean and agile in terms of um, things. So uh, we've seen our asset base grow significantly over the last few months um, just because people are shifting the, the way they operate and making sure they get maximum value out of the um, assets that they do have. Uh, I think that answers your question. Yeah, I think one of the elements though, it's similarly is... Um behaviour of OEMs in some situations. Um, I, I think um, in our exposure, there are some OEMs that are very good and do practice um, circular economy principles and, and through lease capability or life cycle management of their assets um, and, and try to run their assets very close loop. So they, they recover the asset at end of life and redeploy the assets. So they've got a loop model which sits internal to their own capability. There are others that are still in the mindset, and it's a terrible thing to say, in spite of what might be on their webpage relative to corporate social responsibility and regenerating assets, uh, there are some that just simply don't practice it and uh, are still focused on providing selling assets mm. to people um, as their principal business. And so there's still a lot to be done um, to encourage the full life cycle use of assets. The OEM is a, a real player in it. And so we're trying to fit in behind the OEM and partner where we can. Uh, but that, that's true to say that some of the OEMs, though, see our model as being counterproductive to their own goals. And mm. That is a worry. Yeah. But I think, I think, you know, there's a shift starting to happen. Um, just going there back is. to circular computing, um, uh, a month or so ago, I think it was um, one of the um, laptop manufacturers that they... Uh, remanufactured um, not on behalf of but they, um, just to explain better circular computing were remanufacturing high-end laptops like HP Lenovo and Dell but they were procuring mm. those you know pre-used ones themselves and then yeah. um, HP have ended up partnering with circular computing and selling the remanufactured HP laptops on the HP website um, and yeah. that was kind of sparked by the increased demand for laptops with people working at home. Um, but mm. it just kind of it's, you know, it's now become a sort of mainstream product. And they've realized the value of having um, both offers new and, and um, you know, pre-used and, and um, you know, high, high quality remanufactured. And it'll last for, you know, another three, four, five years. And yes. I think, you know, companies are starting to see that if they don't do that, um, as I said in one of my blogs, you're leaving value on the table for somebody else. What's to stop mm. somebody coming in and selling refurbished or remanufactured equipment that you made and somebody else is making money out of that? So doesn't it make mm. sense to to do that yourself and kind of, you know, keep keep the life and keep the value in all those in, in the equipment that you've put so much time and effort into designing and testing and um, marketing mm. and all, all the rest of it? Yeah, definitely. Um, not just the OEMs, but uh, that's one critical element of the loop model is the service partners. That So they, they can go and support those assets as well in the second life. And we're building our network of those service partners 
to support that where the OEMs might not, it's not necessarily that they, um, it could be just capacity, sheer capacity or, or something that they, you know, they need to focus on the R&D and the innovation. So the technology is always improving, but the service partners that can go and support this is, is critical because then it can extend the life, but then it provides that secondary market for it as well. Yeah, exactly. So looking back on the last few years on all the um, the trials and tribu tribulations and learnings of um, getting this service out to the market, um, what's what would be your top tip for anybody looking to um, start a circular model? It, it comes down again to the, this action of discipline around managing the asset, recording the use of the asset. Um, it's just a practice that we get quite shocked at. It just doesn't exist. And so people need to consider that uh, I might have a finite life on my asset, but the asset has an extension post my use. And to maximize that, to have a good program around managing the asset, recording its use, maintaining its warranty, is to my mind one of the big critical breakthroughs that the many people could make and that helps them extend asset life. You know, as you, in any situation, buying something that's underutilized, you have a, a, a level of concern about that. But mitigating that concern through good record keeping and good maintenance records is essential. And, and that's, I think, the, uh, an element that everybody we talk to, we try and foster that and grow that, um, the application of those principles. Mm, yeah. And as you, as you said earlier, um, you know, it's, we do it without thinking in some um, examples, don't we? Like the car. Um, you wouldn't not fill the service logbook logbook in and then expect mm. to you know uh, command the mo the most value when you come to sell the car at the end of the well, exactly of right the, of the no, when you've when you've got a hundred thousand dollar piece of asset sitting in a health provider um, and a new piece comes along that's better and got you know new features more algorithms um, to then put that asset that you've only had for a limited period on the scrap heap, which happens. Um, you know, just highlights the opportunity that's there. Uh, and that's the thing that we're trying to champion and, and drive through our model. So for any organisation that wants to get started, we've made it really simple. Whether you've got a maintenance regime or not, it doesn't really matter. We can help work with you to start proactively registering your assets within our circular asset database and network. If you've got assets within the laboratory and life science sector, as it's the primary type of assets we're currently focusing on, I guess the only thing you need to ask yourself is, do you, have, do you own these type of assets? And if the answer is yes, then you should really consider getting in touch with us and registering them with Loop. Yeah, brilliant. So Noreen and Michael, how can people get in touch and find out more about all the brilliant stuff that Loop Global's doing? Um, so you can get in touch with us via our website, www.loopglobal.com. Um, or info at Loop Global or connect with us on LinkedIn as well. So you'll have our details within the podcast information, I'm sure. Yeah, that's right. I'll put, put those links in the show notes so people can um, look you up and, and, uh, and connect and hopefully um, find out more about how Loop Global's circular asset management can help, help those companies um, you know, save money and do some good for our planet and society. Brilliant. So thank you very much for um, breaking into your evening in Australia to, um, to talk to me this morning. And uh, it was great to catch up with you both again and look forward to hearing about what's next in the circular asset services and other great things that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so thank much. You. What struck me 
is how many organisations are missing opportunities to reduce their capital expenditure and day-to-day -day operating costs, as well as to get on top of planned maintenance to improve their performance and uptime. And this is all because they aren't treating their equipment as a true asset. Instead, they think of equipment as a sunk cost and tend to forget about it. Loop Global is finding ways to help organisations change both mindsets and ways of working. They're helping their customers improve their balance sheets, cash flow and operating costs, as well as creating social and environmental benefits. It's a win-win all round. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one? Head over to rethinkglobal.info or buy my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook for Business and Supply Chains, which takes you through the concepts and practicalities, including lots of real examples from around the world. You can find the podcast show notes with transcripts and links on rethinkglobal.info. Please let us know what you'd like us to feature on the podcast, and you can help other people find it by reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. You can get in touch via our website, rethinkglobal.info, or connect with me on LinkedIn. See you next time. <laughs>